This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 151st edition of the program. Today is July 12th, and this episode of the podcast is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and that includes Alex Wood, Artem Antipenko, Brian Luft, Kia Kiani, Nancy Bernard, Nisama, Nilan Ledbetter, Rachel, Roy Sutherland, Sol, and Wayne Rutledge. So thanks so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the program, you could visit humanistreport.com support, or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, first, we'll talk about President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, and why he'd be a disaster if he is in fact confirmed. We'll also talk about Mike Pence's desire to overturn Roe v. Wade. Also on the program, I'll provide you with an update to California's net neutrality law, why I think Barbara Lee would be a great replacement to Nancy Pelosi, we'll talk about a new game show that capitalizes on the student loan crisis, Joy Reid learns about corporate free candidates thanks to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell can't eat in peace anymore, we'll talk about how he's being heckled in public constantly. Tom Perez, the DNC chairman, comments on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and calls her the future of the Democratic Party. We'll also talk about a debate about democratic socialism between Tucker Carlson and Cornel West. I'll weigh in and tell you my thoughts on this issue. YouTube's plan to combat fake news will be discussed because I think we all know that this may inadvertently harm independent media, such as shows like this one. And finally, I will speak with congressional candidate from Washington State, Dorothy Gasquet. So that's on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the program. So as you all know, President Donald Trump named Brett Kavanaugh as the replacement to Justice Anthony Kennedy. And even though I think all of us expected whoever Donald Trump chose to be a disaster, Kavanaugh may be a bigger bigger disaster than we all anticipated a Trump nominee would be, not just because he's expectedly socially conservative, but because he's also really bad on other issues like net neutrality. He thinks net neutrality is unconstitutional. Yeah. Also, he's in favor of the NSA's bulk data collection. I don't think I could take any judge seriously who thinks that the NSA's spying, warrantless spying on Americans is constitutional because that's just a brazen violation of the Constitution. But nonetheless, Donald Trump chose this individual, and I'll tell you more about him um, after we watch the announcement. It is my honor and privilege to announce that I will nominate Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. Judge Kavanaugh has impeccable credentials, unsurpassed qualifications, and a proven commitment to equal justice under the law. A graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School, Judge Kavanaugh currently teaches at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. Throughout legal circles, he is considered a judge's judge, a true thought leader among his peers. 
He is a brilliant jurist with a clear and effective writing style, universally regarded as one of the finest and sharpest legal minds of our time. Now, as usual, you know, that was nothing more than fluff. Kavanaugh is essentially a right-wing partisan hack, just like Neil Gorsuch was. I don't I don't ever expect anyone who's appointed to the Supreme Court on the left or the right to simply interpret the Constitution. I think that we all need to acknowledge the reality that Supreme Court justices are nothing more than partisan ideologues. I think the days of justices like Sandra Day O'Connor, who tried to interpret the Constitution in an objective manner, I mean, they're just over. Those days are long gone. Now we just get, you know, um, members of either party's team playing for their side. Now, I don't expect Kavanaugh to be any less hacky than any other Supreme Court justice. So, as Adam Liptak of the New York Times reports, Kavanaugh has been a conservative powerhouse issuing around 300 opinions. His dissents have often led to Supreme Court appeals and the justices have repeatedly embraced the positions set out in Judge Kavanaugh's opinions. In 2011, Judge Kavanaugh dissented from a decision upholding President Barack Obama's health care law, but he did so on jurisdictional grounds. At a 2016 argument over Mr. Obama's climate change regulations, he indicated that environmental Environmental policy should be decided by Congress rather than the courts. He has also been open to using the First Amendment to strike down government regulations, dissenting from the full District of Columbia Circuit's decision not to rehear a three-judge panel's decision upholding the Obama administration's net neutrality regulations. He said the government can no more tell internet service providers what content to carry than it can tell bookstores what books they can sell. The net neutrality rule is unlawful, he wrote, because the rule impermissible permissibly infringes on the internet service provider's editorial discretion. His opinion on abortion rights, religious exemptions, and Mr. Obama's health care law share a common quality. They were all conservative, but none took an absolutist position. So that kind of gives you a little bit of insight into this guy's worldview. He doesn't view the internet as a utility. That's crucial for modern Americans to look for employment to create businesses, to get access to information and news. He thinks it's just like television. So if internet service providers want to create internet packages that are akin to television packages too, then the government can't say anything about that. And if they do, it's unconstitutional. That's insight into someone who may very well be on the Supreme Court. That's terrifying. So, I mean, this individual... It's just devastating. And for me, one way that I kind of, as, as I alluded to earlier, am able to gauge just how serious a judge is about interpreting the Constitution and really how close they follow the Constitution, I always look to their stance on NSA spying to determine if they're truly trying to objectively interpret the Constitution. And, you know, they're not just being partisan hacks because I don't think you'll find a more clear-cut example of the government violating the Constitution. So, um... He is in favor of the government violating the Constitution in the form of NSA spying. So, as Dylan Matthews of Vox reports, Kavanaugh has also ruled in favor of the National Security Agency's expansive call record surveillance operation, arguing that collecting these records did not constitute a search, and that even if it did, the government can take such records if it has a special need to prevent terrorism, even if this burdens the constitutional rights of those searched. That's a truly expansive rationale 
rationale that makes even many conservatives uneasy. He also worked to limit challenges to detention for terror suspects, and recently wrote that he thinks the former Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is unconstitutional on separation of powers grounds. So, I mean... As he is being lauded by conservatives for being a real scholar, for, you know, objectively interpreting the Constitution and, you know, staying true to a particular judicial philosophy, I can't take him seriously. How can you say with a straight face that you think the NSA spying on every single American is perfectly reasonable and constitutional? You're just not following the Constitution. You're doing mental gymnastics to get the policy that's unconstitutional to somehow adhere to the Constitution. But you can't. You can't do that because the NSA's bulk data collection violates the Fourth Amendment. It just does. So I don't take them seriously. So no matter what, I mean, um, the point is that Senate Democrats have got to do everything in their power to resist this guy. He's bad news for the country. He could potentially strike down issues like um, abortion, Roe v. Wade. Before, he wouldn't state his position on Roe v. Wade when um, Bush appointed him to a federal judgeship and he was asked by Chuck Schumer about Roe v. Wade. Well, he said, look, the Supreme Court, they set that precedent. I adhere to the, the principle of stare decisis and I'm not going to overturn decades of precedent. I can't do that. But he didn't say what he would do in the event he were in a position on the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. So this guy, he's got to be resisted. But unfortunately, Democrats like Doug Jones, they're already kind of giving us signs that they're going to roll over and die and approve him. So Chuck Schumer, is he's saying the right things right now, but he's done that before. He's talked tough before, and then he backed down within days. So I don't know that... This isn't a foregone conclusion, and I really, really hope Democrats can do whatever they can to delay his appointment until after the midterms, or just block it altogether. I mean, maybe they can do something with regard to quorum, where they they boycott his um, confirmation hearings. They've got to pull out every fucking trick that they've got right now, because this guy will impact this country for decades if he's confirmed. And that's not what this country needs right now. Now that Donald Trump has named Brett Kavanaugh as his replacement to Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court, I think the question a lot of us are asking ourselves is whether or not this is ultimately going to be the guy that is the deciding vote in an upcoming case that overturns Roe v. Wade. Now, personally, I think it's it's pretty evident that Donald Trump probably really likes Kavanaugh's stance on executive power because this is someone who's argued that a sitting president can't be indicted unless they're first impeached. And interestingly enough, this same individual was part of Starr's impeachment effort against Clinton. But conveniently, now that a Republican may be facing impeachment, Kavanaugh's views have shifted. Surprise, surprise. But will this individual be bold enough to overturn decades of precedent with regard to Roe v. Wade? I think that's an open question. I, I don't know that anyone actually has an answer to that except for Kavanaugh himself. Now, even if he claims that, you know, he can disaggregate his 
personal opinion on abortion from his judicial philosophy, we all know he's thought about this. We all know that this is someone who is ambitious, who wanted to be on the Supreme Court, who's thought about what he would say if he had the chance to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, as a federal judge, he said he'd respect the Supreme Court's precedent, but as a Supreme Court justice with power to overturn that decision, we don't actually know what he'd do. He refused to answer the question when Chuck Schumer posed it to him years ago. So generally speaking, I think that Trump was probably motivated by Kavanaugh's stance on executive power, but at the same time, I think Mike Pence, it was clear that he was motivated by Kavanaugh's view on Roe v. Wade. Now, even though he claims that that necessarily wasn't the case, it's clear that Mike Pence is bullshitting all of us. Listen to this interview he did with CNN, and he gave the most slimiest responses a politician could give. In uh, 2006, Brett Kavanaugh testified that Roe versus Wade is settled law. You campaigned extensively on the notion that Roe versus Wade should be consigned to the ash heap of history. Are you worried that he's not going to follow what you want to do? Well, Dana, as you know, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. And I'm proud to be part of a pro-life administration that's advanced pro-life policies. But what I can assure you is that what the president was looking for here was a nominee who will respect the Constitution as written, who will faithfully uh, uphold the Constitution in all of his interpretations of the law. Do you still want Roe that was Wade to be overturned? Well, I, I do, but I, I, I haven't been nominated to the Supreme Court. Right, but I mean, you're Judge part of the administration has. that campaigned, you and the president That's campaigned, right. saying right. you will find nominees to overturn Roe versus Wade. Will you be disappointed if he is given that opportunity and he doesn't? Will well, you be disappointed? Well, let me say, as I said, I, I, I stand for the sanctity of life. This administration, this president are pro-life. But, you know, what, what the American people ought to know is that, as the president said today, this is not an issue that he discussed with Judge Kavanaugh. I didn't discuss it with him either. What we really focused on was the character, the background, the credentials, and the judicial philosophy. But again, you, you campaigned so aggressively on finding a nominee who would overturn Roe versus Wade do you feel confident? Can you can you assure the people who voted for you on that notion that this is the man who will do that? Well, what what I can assure people that voted for us is that this will continue to be a pro-life administration. From early in this administration, President Trump has taken decisive steps um, to advance uh, pro-life values at home and and frankly in foreign aid around the world. But what I can also assure people is that the president believes that the proper consideration for a nominee to the court is not about litmus tests. I mean, frankly, we, we've seen enough of litmus tests over the decades. What, what we don't want is to have people go to the courts with a specific uh, objective or policy criteria. We want people to go that respect the Constitution, respect the Constitution as written, will not legislate from the bench. Right. And President Trump and I are absolutely well, convinced that, that Judge Kavanaugh is exactly the kind of jurist that the American people in the majority want to see. So in that clip, Mike Pence basically came off as a caricature of a slimy politician that most of us all hate, just rehearsed, obviously bullshitting you and lying through his teeth. I mean, it, it was just disgusting. And 
it bothered me that he stated multiple times that he's pro-life. He says, quote, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it, and I'm proud to be part of a pro-life administration that's advanced pro-life policies. And later he said, I stand for the sanctity of life. This administration, this president, are pro-life. So he called himself pro-life four different times in one sentence. But you're not pro-life, Mike Pence. You don't get to claim that you're pro-life if you are bombing eight different countries simultaneously. You don't get to claim to be pro-life if you gave Saudi Arabia weapons that they're now using to commit genocide in Yemen. You don't get to be pro-life if you ignore Israel's massacre of peaceful Palestinian protesters. You don't get to claim that you are pro-life if you're fine with people dying if they don't have health insurance. You don't get to claim to be pro-life if you're against the death penalty. You're not fucking pro-life, Mike Pence. You are the party of death and destruction, and you couldn't care less about life at all. So you're not pro-life. You don't get to claim you're pro-life unless you check all the boxes that communicates to me that you are, in fact, willing to uphold the sanctity of life in all cases. That means you're against war. You're in favor of single-payer universal health care of some sort. You're against the death penalty. But until you adopt those policy positions, you do not get to call yourself pro-life. You lying fool. Now, on the question of whether or not he wants to overturn Roe v. Wade, um, it was very clear. He admitted. He does. He states, well, I do. Uh, but I haven't really... I haven't been nominated to the Supreme Court, and what we really focused on was the character, the background, the credentials, and the judicial philosophy of Brett Kavanaugh. Does anybody believe a word that this liar is saying? As the interviewer said, you campaigned on this issue. You vociferously advocated for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. This is what the riot has been wanting for decades now, the evangelical right in particular. You don't care that now 57% of the American population thinks abortion should be legal. You don't care that there are decades of precedent that would be undermined. So look, Mike Pence is a liar. I don't believe for one minute that this wasn't a consideration. Of course it's a consideration. Don't be duped by him. And I don't think anyone will be duped by him, but I just couldn't not share this clip because he's so fake. He's such a slimy politician. And it looked like he was crying in this clip or just got done crying. I don't know if any of you have played that game, um, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic on Xbox or any of these games where you get to kind of, you have a character and you choose whether or not to be good or evil. Well, as you progress throughout the game and your character becomes more evil, they start to look more evil. And Mike Pence looks like a character in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic where you've made a lot of evil decisions and over time your character starts to look more evil. That's what Mike Pence looks like. So last week on the show, I told you guys about how Senate Majority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell was confronted by protesters about President Donald Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy. And... It hasn't slowed down for Mitch McConnell in terms of disruptions of his private life because he was confronted by protesters <laughs> two more times since last week. So here is him being confronted by protesters again about immigration um, after he left a restaurant. You out! Vote 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 you out! 
the babies, Vote you out. Vote you out. Vote you out. Yeah. Vote you out. 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 What are you doing to get the babies back? Yeah, we know where you live, too, bitch. We know where you live. Abolish ice! Abolish ice! Abolish ice! Abolish ice! We did good, fellow citizens. No comfort for fascists! No, no comfort! Justice, no peace! No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! We'll vote you out, baby! They called him... <laughs> they called him a turtle. <laughs> a turtle man. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, now, at another restaurant, they were blasting music. I'm not going to tell you the song. I don't want to spoil it. Um, and they were also shouting, No justice, no peace. Take a look. Now, obviously, he was in that restaurant. So, I absolutely love all of this. I think that if public officials like Mitch McConnell refuse to listen to you, you've got to take action in more unorthodox ways. And if it means disrupting their private life, I'm okay with that if you're doing it for the greater good, if you're doing it for a cause, if you're doing it at the behest of marginalized communities. I do think, though, that this is a teachable moment because after I talked favorably about the red hen kicking out someone like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I think that people still kind of misconstrue my view on that as well as other people's similar views on that and that, you know, we're not saying that it's acceptable for you to kick someone out based on their political ideology, but it is okay for you to protest public officials with power who are in a uniquely powerful position to actually affect change in a meaningful way. I think that's fine. So, because I'm okay with this turtle being hounded at restaurants, being called out for numerous reasons, it doesn't mean that I'm okay with something like this happening. Supporting the president. You ain't supporting shit, nigga. Okay. It's gonna go great in my fucking fireplace, bitch. Alright, have fun with it. Now in the Mitch McConnell situation, he has a lot of power. He's the Senate Majority Leader for the ruling party currently. So if you confront him in public, that's a protest. If you walk up to a teenager wearing a MAGA hat and you steal that hat and throw your drink in his face... You're just being a dick. You're not affecting change. You're not doing anything meaningful that will actually result in a policy change. You're just not. So I'm against that. And I wanted to 
really go out of my way to come out against this to kind of prove to people that, look, when I say I'm not in favor of discrimination based on political ideology, I'm consistent on that. I've been consistent on that. I don't think going up to Donald Trump supporters and confronting them and harassing them will make a difference at all. In fact, you're only helping to embolden the right with their victim narrative. So I absolutely unequivocally condemn the individual that walked up to these teenagers with absolutely no political power and decided to just be a dick and dump their drink on them. That's that's assault. You can't do that. That's unacceptable. Now, if you switch it out, if you put Mitch McConnell in that situation where that guy walked up to Mitch McConnell, let's say he was wearing a MAGA hat and you snatched up his MAGA hat and you poured your drink on, on him, would that be acceptable? Well, that still wouldn't be acceptable because you're assaulting him. But if that individual wanted to walk up to Mitch McConnell and confront him about his policies as someone in power, that's just protest. At the end of the day, that's just protest. So long as it's civil and nonviolent, it's protest. So there's a difference between harassing Trump supporters and protesting people in power. Now, the line between protest and disruption and harassment it's blurred. So you do need to be cognizant of that fact, as, I, as I've said before, and make sure that you're not doing anything to, um, you know, um, I guess, create violence or cause too big of a scene where somebody gets hurt. But speaking truth to power, that's that's the hallmark of democracy. So to all of the right wingers complaining about Mitch McConnell being harassed, you have no legs to stand on here. You don't got a single leg to stand on. But for those of you against this Trump supporter, this teenager who had his hat stolen, I'm with you. I think that's wrong. We shouldn't be discriminating against citizens who just choose to voice their political views, you know, on their clothing or symbolically or artistically. Like, stop. You're not doing anything. If you truly want to make a difference, that's not the way that, not the way to do it. But if you want to make a difference by confronting people in power like Mitch McConnell, that's an effective tactic. So hopefully this sheds some light on the difference, but by and large, I um I decided to share these clips because it's always fun to see someone as corrupt and duplicitous as Mitch McConnell be made a fool of by people he's supposed to be representing. Rolling Stone magazine recently interviewed Nancy Pelosi, and when the question of her role as House Minority Speaker came up, she basically said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. Now, even though the Democratic Party has been wiped out under her leadership, Democrats in the House still vote for her every single time when she runs to be the leader of the House. And why do they do this? Well, it's simple. The reason why they do this is because they rely on her corporate cronyism. She is a fundraising machine. In the first quarter of this year alone, she raked in $16.1 million. So if these Democrats vote her out of this leadership position, then they lose out on the money that she raises for all Democrats in the House. So even if her presence there is hurting the aggregate party, they're relying on her corporate cronyism and still voting for her probably in spite of all of her flaws because that kind of eases the fundraising burden off of them.
Now, when I call her a corporate pawn, that's not just me saying this. I think that most people view her as a corporate pawn. In fact, she even acknowledges that her own constituents see her as a corporate pawn. In my district, they call me a corporate pawn uh, because my district is so progressive. No shit. You know, my own constituents, they even call me a corporate pawn. <laughs> but I'm not going anywhere. That's what she's saying here, right? She's saying that she knows that she's out of touch. She's saying that her own constituents think that she's too centrist and she refuses to budge on progressive policies because she's bankrolled by these special interests that don't want her to, but she's not going anywhere. So now, there are a couple of Democrats that are trying to challenge her power. Individuals like Tim Ryan, like Seth Moultons, and Rolling Stone asked her about her views on this, you know, what to make of this, what to make of the fact that people are trying to challenge her. But this is what she had to say. Inconsequential. They don't have a following in our caucus. None. Now, she later stated in the interview that she's not worried about anyone challenging her, and she's specifically not worried about them challenging her, meaning that there's no way they're ever going to be able to compete with her fundraising abilities. And look, she does raise a lot of money, but that's a problem. If you raise all this money and you divvy up that corporate cash to your colleagues in the house, then what happens? They all become reliant on that corporate cash. They become corrupted. They stop listening to the people and they start looking at what special interests want because they look to you as a leader, Nancy. They see that, oh, well, she's selling out and she's raising money for it. Maybe I should do the same thing. Now, the problem is that if anyone really was going to challenge Nancy Pelosi, it probably, they wouldn't be successful. Someone like Tim Ryan, it, I would be surprised if they were successful. Even if, you know, I would I'd probably support Tim Ryan. Um, is he the best? Not necessarily, but Basically, anyone is an improvement from Nancy Pelosi. The problem, however, that, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is that who would actually be able to win is an individual like Steny Hoyer, who's the second highest ranking Democrat, who I think would be worse than Nancy Pelosi. So progressives are kind of backed into a corner and trapped in this nightmare scenario where if we truly want to challenge Nancy Pelosi and get her out, well, the only person who could possibly take her place at this point in time is someone like Steny Hoyer because Tim Ryan and Seth Moltens, they just wouldn't be able to muster the support that uh, someone like Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi would. So the only option of getting rid of Nancy is replacing her with someone worse. So what do we do in this situation? Well, we might have some hope because there's one individual who is considering a run at leadership. And that person is Representative Barbara Lee of California, who is considering a bid to be House Leader. Now, the reason why we're all talking about Barbara Lee being House Leader is because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, after she was elected, she was asked who she would support. Would she back Nancy Pelosi? And, you know, she kind of gave a non-answer and said, look, tell me when Barbara Lee runs. And then Barbara Lee kind of responded by saying, I might be down for it. Now, is Barbara Lee perfect? No, I don't think she's perfect. She does take corporate PAC money, but she is very consistent and pretty unapologetically progressive on some issues. So when it comes to Medicare for All, the House bill, HR 676, she was one of the first to co-sponsor that bill. In fact, I think she was the second House Democrat, if I'm not mistaken, to co-sponsor that bill. So even though 
a majority of House Democrats got on board with that. They only did it after we hounded them to do it for months. She did it before it was the cool thing to do. She's also basically made a career off of being anti-war. She even wanted to hold the Bush administration accountable when they broke the law, when they lied to the American people. Now, as John Nichols of The Nation explains, were Lee to join the leadership, it would be a powerful indication that congressional Democrats are beginning to recognize what the congresswoman from Oakland, Berkeley, and surrounding communities identifies as signals that our base voters are very engaged and they want to see change. Lee would be the first African-American woman to serve in the leadership of either party in the House and told the San Francisco Chronicle, it's time. African-American women have been the smartest and most loyal voters for the Democratic Party, and often we don't get the recognition or the involvement at the highest levels. Lee's advancement to a leadership position would also demonstrate an understanding that voters desire new approaches to both domestic and foreign policy issues. We have to renew our checks and balances because this administration is wreaking havoc on the country and on the world, says Lee who earned national notice in September of 2001 when she cast the only vote against the Bush-Cheney administration's request for a blank check authorization of the use of military force in response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Lee's argument that it is necessary to avert undeclared wars and dial back the excesses of the military-industrial complex have popular appeal. She has become one of the most dynamic and necessary voices in the Democratic Party on foreign policy issues. In 2012, she presented the party's platform proposal to the Democratic National Convention. Her anti-interventionist, diplomacy-focused worldview is gaining traction in a party that now includes Lee allies such as Congressional Progressive Caucus co-chair Mark Pocon and Congressman Ro Khanna, and it is all but certain that the pro-peace, pro-diplomacy contingent will grow after the 2018 election to include an outspoken advocate for moving Barbara Lee into the leadership of the House, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that last point about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is really important because she's basically... She's a rising star in politics, generally speaking, not just in the Democratic Party. She's just, everyone is watching her right now. So if she says that Barbara Lee should be the House leader, then people are going to pay attention to what she has to say because she has their ear currently. So it's it's that enthusiasm that Ocasio-Cortez brings that makes this possible. But also, Barbara Lee has been in Congress for, I believe, 20 years now. So it's not like she's a newcomer who's trying to subvert power in the house. She's been there. She's paid her dues. So maybe leadership isn't a bad idea for her. And additionally, if you're against her coming at this from the identity politics angle saying, oh, well, you should vote for me because I'm a black woman. Well, you have to understand that even if I disagree with the weaponization of identity politics. The good thing is that at least the establishment can't weaponize identity politics and use it against her because she's a woman of color who is the party's most loyal demographic. So I'll say this. She's not necessarily my first choice. I think someone like Raul Grijalva or Ro Khanna would be my first and second choice, respectively. But Raul's been there since 2013. Ro's been there since 2016. The chances of them mustering up enough support from the caucus is is very, very low. I mean, of course, it's not impossible. Anything's possible if we all lobby for it and rally around these individuals. But someone like Barbara Lee, it's almost as if they can't come up with an argument to deny her being House leader. 
she raises quite a bit of money and even though she does take corporate PAC money, her small dollar donors are higher than other corporate Democrats. And I'm not saying she's a corporate Democrat. She's much better than other people, but you know, she's not perfect. That's the point. But in terms of leadership, I think she's the best case scenario in terms of anyone who can win. If Steny Hoyer replaces Nancy Pelosi, we're no better off. In fact, we may be worse off, believe it or not. But Barbara Lee, someone who has a chance of winning, could really make a difference. So I'm all for it. Um, if she if she were to be the House leader, um, it's not like things would all be peachy keen, but it would be a, a huge step in the right direction. So what I love probably the most thus far about the victories of progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ben Jealous is that members of the Democratic Party establishment are essentially forced to pretend as if they're excited for their victories when in actuality, deep down, you know that they're dying inside because they know that the rise of progressives signals the demise of their careers. So they don't like that there's this incoming progressive wave that will inevitably wipe them out. But yet they have to pretend as if, oh, you know, we welcome them with open arms. Um, and some of them aren't doing a very good job at even faking it. Nancy Pelosi was <laughs> was very, very, um, it was evident that she wanted to downplay Ocasio-Cortez's victory and that there's no, you know, progressive movement. And this is kind of just a one-off for that particular district. But the fact remains that this is the future of the Democratic Party. We will take it over I believe that we will win. Now, what's interesting is that DNC Chairman Tom Perez, who's acted as an obstacle to this progressive takeover, actually said what I just said. He stated that he believes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the future of the Democratic Party. Now, something else happened last week. There was, or was or, or, there was a primary in several states, your state, home state of Maryland, uh, and also up, up in New York, where... The fourth most powerful Democrat in the United States Congress, uh, Congressman Joe Crowley, um, was knocked out by a young woman, Alex Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 28 years old, never ran for office before, uh, big progressive, calls her because a Democratic mm -hmm. Socialist, actually, like Bernie Sanders did. She was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And in Maryland, Ben Jealous, uh, another strong progressive wins the Democratic nomination for governor. What's this tell you about where the Democratic Party's going today? Well, I, I, uh, my daughters, uh, I have three kids, two of whom are, are daughters. Uh, one just graduated college, one is in college, and they were both uh, uh, texting me about their excitement over Alexandria because you know, she really, she represents the future of our party. You're damn right, Tom Perez. And look, uh, credit words do. He's right about one thing. I don't think he's ever been right before, but he's right about this. Now... Let's be, <laughs> let's be overly cynical here because um, I think you've got to be because the DNC, Tom Perez, they've given us zero reasons to trust them. Why would he say that when obviously that statement doesn't behoove him and his wing of the party? Well, basically, this is what I think is happening here. He's trying to signal to us that he's on our side because... When this inevitable progressive wave hits, he doesn't want to be wiped out by it. He still wants a job. So he's trying to basically um, jump on the bandwagon before it's too late and signal to us that he's on our side. But in actuality, Tom Perez, his actions indicate that he doesn't think that progressives are the future of this party. Because think about everything that he's doing. He decided to endorse Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. 
He broke his promise to remain neutral and endorsed a corporate Democrat over someone who is essentially the same when it comes to policy as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So if you think that Alexandria represents the future of the party, Tom, why not endorse Cynthia Nixon? And look, I'm not even expecting you to endorse anyone. I want you to be neutral. But you endorse someone who is the opposite of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You endorsed Andrew Cuomo, who refuses to return donations to Donald Trump. Additionally, Tom Perez purged progressives from the DNC. And what did he do? He replaced all of those individuals with loyalists to him and the Democratic Party establishment. So what he's saying here in telling us that, you know, progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez represent the future... All he's doing is blowing smoke up our asses. That's all he's doing. He's just paying us lip service, but he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want her to be the future because he's doing everything in his power to stop that from happening. And it's not just Tom Perez, to be fair. When you look at the DCCC, they're actually trying to bully progressives out of races. So, for example, when you look at Colorado, Levi Tilleman was told by Steny Hoyer, the second highest ranking Democrat, that he needs to drop out, and if he doesn't, he shouldn't attack the corporate candidate at all, Jason Crow. I mean, how can you say that this is the future if the establishment, which you represent, Tom, is doing everything to stop that? And it's not just the DCCC, it's not just the DNC, it's state parties. Multiple state parties across the country disenfranchise independent progressives. There are state parties across the country that are trying to suppress progressives. Look at Rhode Island, who's currently trying to oust progressive women from their caucus. I mean... By and large, across the country, the Democratic Party apparatus, the establishment, the donor class, they've done everything in their power to fight against this incoming progressive wave, and you're not going to stop it. But they want to stop it. He might pretend to be an ally. He might say, you know what, she's the future of the party. It's inevitable. But in actuality, he doesn't believe that, and he doesn't want it to be the case. So don't tell us that she's the future of the party, Tom, because your actions indicate that you don't believe that. Show us that you want that to be the case. Remove all of the legal and institutional barriers that are stopping progressives from taking over the party. If you're aligned with us, if you're truly our allies and you're on our side and not on the side of the party's biggest donors, then what's to be afraid of if we took, take over the party? Well, this is what he's afraid of. He doesn't want to lose his job and a lot of the consultant and donor class they want to make sure that they still have sway in American politics. And if progressives take over, their days are numbered. They're going to be unemployed. So that's what this is about. Um, and maybe I'm being a little bit too cynical here, but I just, I don't think we have a reason to trust Tom Perez in anything he says I am 100% skeptical of. Because again, the DNC has given us zero reasons to trust them when they say anything. So whatever they say, even if it sounds good, You've got to question the motives because chances are they're trying to find a way to flip it and fuck us over. Nearly a year ago, on August 5th of 2017, MSNBC host Joanne Reed made a very bold and frankly factually incorrect statement about the way in which candidates finance their elections. So in response to Twitter user at Citizen Pierre, who tweeted, what most progressives are hearing is you have to accept corporate Democrats, but won't accept real progressives. Joy Reid responded by saying, dude, all candidates raise money from corporate donors. Wake up and retire. 
<laughs> I can't do it with a straight face. Wake up and retire. <laughs> Wake up and retire. This silly talking point. Now the problem with that statement is that it's just wrong. There are dozens of candidates across the country. There were at the time even. Um, that haven't taken a dime of corporate money. And this is what I said at the time in response to that factually incorrect statement from Joanne Reed. So in other words, she's telling her followers that they should be ignorant and vote against their own interests. Because if you're saying that all candidates take corporate money, then you're saying, well, we don't have to worry about it. So just, you know, if, if you like what they're saying, then just accept it. There's no need to question it. There's no need to be skeptical and, you know, look at their campaign finance reports. You just should accept whoever the Democratic Party gives you. Now, as someone in the media that reaches an audience of potentially millions of people each week, she should be shining a light on the corrupting influence of money in politics, but instead, she's now doing propaganda for corrupt politicians, and she's telling her viewers that they should accept said corruption. I mean, this is a level of propaganda that we see from state-run media outlets in authoritarian countries. It's just absurd. Now, I wasn't the only one that called out Joy and Reed at that time because there were a number of progressive candidates who don't take corporate PAC money that chimed in and responded to Joy and Reed. And one of those individuals was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who stated, I don't, neither does Sarah Smith, Paula Jean Swearingen, Rob Ryers, or Chardo Richardson. No brand new Congress or Justice Democrat candidate does either. And she also said, we shouldn't normalize corporate ownership of public policy. You can run competitively without big money. And now that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proved that you can be competitive while not selling out and taking corporate money, she actually appeared on Joanne Reed's show on MSNBC and had the opportunity to educate her about the actual number of people not taking corporate money and running clean campaigns. You're already using the star power that you've gained to help other candidates, yeah. which means you're, you've got to be pretty confident that you're going to win the race. Well, I think what it is is that we need to show that this is a movement. You know, even before the win of this race, I communicated to voters that this and my candidacy and my campaign was a movement campaign, mm -hmm. a movement candidacy. And I believe that the strength of my individual candidacy has to do with the fact that I am one of many. Yeah. There are 60 congressional candidates nationwide that are refusing corporate and lobbyist money in the Democratic Party. And I think that it's important, you know, I don't think that it's a, this, this zero-sum understanding of political capital is correct in this day and age. Yeah. By supporting other candidates, I myself get stronger and, and vice versa. Now that had to be a bit awkward for Joy Reid. In fact, the look on her face kind of told you everything about what she was thinking there, seeing that she's one of the people that has this zero-sum understanding of political capital. Now, after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez educated Joy Reid, she finally, after nearly a year later, decided to correct the record and actually educate her followers by tweeting out Alexandria Ocasio's quote about the number of candidates that aren't taking corporate money. So it shouldn't have taken her a year nearly to fact check herself. If you're in the mainstream media, it's your job to educate us. We shouldn't have to be educating you. It shouldn't be the other way around. But instead, what was it? Uh, the night that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won, what did Joanne Reed tweet? Uh, you know, all these political journalists and mainstream media are doing a crash course in Ocasio-Cortez tonight. <laughs> what? How are you only learning about her now? It's your job. You get paid the big bucks to do this, Joy. How are you that out of touch with the grassroots and what's happening in the Democratic Party? You are a Democratic Party loyalist. Shouldn't you, in trying to protect the establishment, be aware of threats to the establishment? Because we're a threat. We're coming.
So how do you miss this? Now, as Jamie underscore Maz on Twitter states, how quickly the winds change direction. And that's pretty much what it comes down to. So look, I'm just glad that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was there and was able to correct the record and actually set Joy Reid straight. And hopefully now Joy Reid will retire that silly talking point that all candidates have to take corporate money. So, you know, on behalf of all progressives, Joy, not all candidates take corporate money. Wake up. So ever since Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated Joe Crowley, I've noticed that there's been this ongoing national conversation about specifically what it means to be a democratic socialist. Now, in the mainstream media, there's been attempts to define what it means. So, for example, on MSNBC, Stephanie Rooley tried to set the record straight, but she ended up inadvertently describing social democracy and not actually democratic socialism. So that's what's kind of happening on the left. But on the right, you've got individuals like Charlie Kirk essentially using that label to red bait and call Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez essentially a communist. And meanwhile, working people who are excited about the policy ideas that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is championing probably are getting confused. So Tucker Carlson of Fox News brought on Cornell West and he wanted Cornell to clear up the confusion surrounding this particular term, democratic socialism. Now, is all the confusion gone? Absolutely not. In fact, I think that the waters have been muddied even further. Um, so I'm going to show you the conversation that Tucker Carlson and Cornell West had. But first, I want to show you the way in which Tucker Carlson describes democratic socialism and the examples that he uses to kind of flesh out what this term means. What do democratic socialists believe? There's no formal platform, but the outlines are pretty clear. Democratic socialists support socialism state ownership of major industries that would include health care technology manufacturing some of them explicitly support communism the co-chair of portland oregon's chapter of the dsa recently tweeted this quote as a dsa chapter co-chair i just want to set the record straight for a minute communism is good but democratic socialism is about more than economics the dsa's official twitter account demands reparations for african americans in the form of free and open enrollment at public colleges, retroactive forgiveness of student loans, and a guaranteed lifetime minimum income. The DSA has also called for an end to all immigrant deportations everywhere in the United States. In New York, the DSA has demanded the abolition of profits, prisons, cash bail, and borders. Not all democratic socialists have the same views on everything, but that gives you some idea. Unlimited, uncontrolled immigration into the U.S., coupled with race-based reparations, the abolition of prisons, and by extension, law and order itself, and a massive expansion of the welfare state financed by an economic system that does not recognize profit. So expectedly, what Tucker Carlson did was pluck out these more extreme examples from the more, uh, I guess you could say, radical factions of the DSA in order to perhaps fearmonger and scare people. But to be fair, I mean, when you tweet something saying communism is good, you kind of give the right ammunition and allow them to do something like this. Because look, as someone who I, I've studied political science for most of my adult life, and in any political science class, what are we going to tell you? Define your terms. So when you just say, as you know, a DSA co-chair, let me just say that communism is good. 
You can't just walk away from that. You've got to define your terms. You've got to tell us what you mean by communism because communism means different things to different people. Most people, like it or not, view it with negative connotations. But, you know, other people, progressive individuals such as myself, don't necessarily view it in the stigmatized way that other people do. I mean, Basically, modern Euro-communism, if you look to parties that identify as communists throughout the world, you'll basically see democratic socialists, essentially. So, really, what needs to be understood is that if you're going to talk about the isms and not the policy, which I think you should always stay focused on the policy, but if you're going to talk about the isms, you have to define your terms. And in political science, understand that they don't even have a widely agreed upon definition of democracy. So defining terms is very important. And that's not to say that political scientists are incapable of defining democracy or they're incompetent and they don't know how to do their job. The point is that these terms are very big. They're broad. They can mean different things to different people. Democracy, for example, has different implications. It has different requirements for different people. Does it mean that we were always a democracy in the United States because we base our governing bodies off of votes? Or were we not a democracy until women had the right to vote? Or are we still not a democracy because we haven't universally extended suffrage to everyone? People who are incarcerated, felons, they still don't have the right to vote. So just saying that you support democracy in and of itself is inherently vague. But when you throw out, throw out an ism like communism and you just walk away and you don't define it, you're just confusing people. And it's <laughs> you're making our jobs more difficult. Again, when, when I would grade political science 101 and 102 classes, anytime before students would make their arguments, if they didn't define their terms, that would be my number one feedback. I'd say define your terms. What do you mean by democracy? What do you mean by communism or socialism? What do you mean by this? Because again, you can you can extract different meanings of different terms in political science. And again, political science terms, they're constantly evolving. So part of political science is defining your terms. So when you say communism is good, you're just giving right-wingers like Tucker Carlson who want to fearmonger about socialism a huge gift and you're saying go ahead um attach whatever implications you want to it because you know I think communism is good now again do I think that we should defeat the stigma you know that's associated with socialism of course we should but you've got to be pragmatic you've got to understand that when you deviate away from policy and start focusing heavily on the isms you've got to explain yourself and um I do want to get to another clip so when Tucker brings on Cornell West, they begin to talk about the meaning of democratic socialism. And I don't necessarily feel as though this was a great, you know, enlightening discussion as I had hoped when I saw that, you know, Cornell West went on Tucker's show. Um, to give us some sense of what democratic socialism is, can you point to an example, an extant example of it that works? Venezuela seems like a, an example of democratic socialism. Would you say that it is? And if so, does it work? No, I don't think that democratic socialism as an ideal has been able to be embodied in a larger social context. There's different forms of it. Some are bad, some are medium, some are better. But the fundamental commitment is to the dignity of ordinary people and to make sure they can live lives of decency. So it's not an ism, no, brother. It's about decency. It's about fairness. Right. It's about the accountability of the powerful vis-a-vis -vis those who have less power. The workplace, women dealing with the household, gays, lesbians, trans, black people, indigenous peoples, 
immigrants, how do we ensure that they are treated decently and that the powerful don't in any way manipulate, subjugate and exploit them? Well, I mean, if that's what democratic socialism is, then I'm basically on board. I do think that ordinary people, middle class people, ought to have Absolutely. dignity. And I think that our current systems make it hard for them to have dignity. So I, I agree Absolutely. with all of that. But the details And matter. that's precisely why, that's why Albert Einstein, Helen, Helen Keller, Norman Thomas, Eugene Debs, Martin Luther King Jr., Ella Baker, we can go on and on. They're all democratic socialists. Michael Harrington, one of the great founders of Democratic uh, so, Socialists but, of but, America. But I've been has, a member for 36 well, I, years. I understand. But has it struck you as interesting that it's never actually worked anywhere? So the question is not what well, are our never, goals. Our goals are the same. How do we get there is the question. So what happened in Venezuela? They call that democratic socialism, but they don't have toilet paper. And it's less equal than no, ever. But the, but part of the problem is, though, brothers, that any time there's been the attempts of ordinary people to engage in self-determination, they can get crushed by external nations. Look at U.S. policies toward Venezuela has been very, very ugly. Nicaragua in the same way. We saw that in so many other instances where countries tried to engage in self-determination and they either get crushed, they either get coerced, and they end up oftentimes responding to that kind of authoritarian treatment. So we've never had a chance to really pull it off. So it's only been a movement so far. It's well, an attempt to resist the greed at the top the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, the various ways in which humanity is violated rather than affirmed. So by and large, I think that Cornell West does a fairly good job explaining what democratic socialism means to him. But anytime you talk about an ism, you talk about a political philosophy and you don't attach it to tangible policies, I think that's a missed opportunity. You allow the other side to obfuscate. So what did Tucker Carlson do? He brought up Venezuela. Whenever somebody on the right brings up Venezuela, you bring up Scandinavia. You bring up the New Deal. You bring up Social Security, which is a very popular program. And you say, look, there's nothing to be afraid of. This is the these are the types of programs we want. The same type of social programs we see in Scandinavia. The same types of programs that we have in the U.S. that work really well. Medicare, Social Security. I mean, what we want to do essentially on the left, by and large, is we want to strip away that profit motive from industries that lead to people dying. Healthcare shouldn't be something that's commodified. We shouldn't leave it up to a market to determine whether or not people have healthcare. That should just be guaranteed as a human right. Now, I do want to address a comment in particular that Cornell West made. He states, we've never had a chance to pull it off, meaning democratic socialism, so it's only been a movement so far. Now, that comment in particular kind of led me to having an epiphany when it comes to this conversation. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you, you see that I tweeted a really long thread ranting about this. What Cornell West should have said is, look, you know, what we all want collectively on the left has already been pulled off. It's being pulled off right now in Scandinavia. Do you see Finland's education system? We want to copy that. You see Canada's single payer system? We want to copy that. I mean, these are overwhelmingly popular political ideas. But when you start attaching them to a political philosophy or an ideology as amorphous and vague, really, as socialism or communism, you you make it really difficult to get the point across. Now, later on, Tucker actually asked Cornell about the New York DSA advocating for the abolition of prisons. Now, Cornell had to clarify and, and said, look, they're, they're really advocating for the abolition of private prisons, which I think we all agree with. But then, you know, um, 
Tucker then kind of made the point, well, shouldn't they make it more clear? And the answer should have been yes, they should have made it more clear. Because when we make fun of individuals like Jordan Peterson for complaining about being taken out of context when he makes comments about, you know, um, enforced monogamy, then we can't complain when we make equally vague statements and then say, oh, well, you took me out of context. No, you should have explained your policy position better. We have to be very clear about what we want on the left if we want to win. Working people don't care about socialism or communism. Working people care about political policies that will have a personal and financial impact on their lives. You can't sell someone an ism. You can sell someone a policy. And that's the overall point. I want us to get away from the isms. This conversation about democratic socialism, again, I think it's useful because um, we've got we've to break that stigma with socialism, because if we do, then once and for all, the right won't be able, you know, to fearmonger about left-wing candidates. But at the same time, always, always, always default back to policies whenever somebody asks you about democratic socialism. Well, look, this is what democratic socialism means. Define it. Definitely define your terms. But then talk about some policies associated with that political philosophy. You can't bring up a bunch of complex political terms that are inherently difficult to define and subject to different interpretations, even in the field of political science, you've got to define what you mean. And the problem is that it's really difficult to define a term like democratic socialism if everybody has different definitions. I mean, democratic socialism is now essentially being marketed as social democracy by people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And now by that definition, I'm by their definition, I'm a democratic socialist. But in actuality, I think I'm more of a social democrat. I identify as a socialist because social democracy is a variant of socialism, but it's basically a mixed economy with capitalism and socialism. But for me, um, you know, I, I think even social democrat isn't the best descriptor for myself because I fall, I fall more on the scale towards socialism than I do on capitalism. I think we need to beat capitalism into submission. I think capitalism is an inherently exploitative and predatory political ideology. But my overall point is that it's not, it's not really useful for me to define my own political philosophy when other individuals might have different interpretations of that same political philosophy. And they wouldn't necessarily be wrong because again these are very complex political terms and overall the problem with focusing on the isms is that it really distracts us from the conversation we should be having about policies i mean think about this if you're trying to market your political ideas which i mean politics is about marketing and you're explaining it to someone who's not politically savvy would you have an easier time explaining the effects socialism would have on someone's life or would you have an easier time explaining the effects Medicare for all would have on their life? Look, you'd save more money. You wouldn't have to pay for your monthly health insurance premium, premium that increases all the time. You wouldn't need to come up with thousands of dollars for a deductible in the event you're sick. That's a lot easier of a conversation to have. It's a lot more palatable way to market your political ideas. But focusing on an ism, you just open the door to obfuscation and right-wing fear-mongering. Marketing your ideas specifically as policies is the easiest way to win, hands down. Think about this. 
Even though Donald Trump's immigration policies are technically proto-fascist, he didn't win the Rust Belt by selling his immigration policies as proto-fascist. He won by linking those policies to economics. And it's almost always the case that when you invoke an ism, you're forced to defend yourself as the non-radical. Whereas when you invoke a policy like Medicare for All that's supported by 60% of the population, anyone who's against that popular idea, well, they're forced to defend themselves as a non-radical for being against an idea that most Americans want. Tucker Carlson would be forced to explain to us why he's not radical for going against a policy like Medicare for All. You should never be in a position to where you're always playing defense. You've got to play offense, and you do that with policy because our policy ideas are overwhelmingly popular. So, I mean, at the end of the day, when, you know, DSA co-chairs tweet about communism being good... When the DSA talks about, oh, this, you know, this room full of people cheered when we mentioned communism, you're not doing the left collectively, all factions that agree on the policy, any favors by doing that. You're just not. I'm sorry. Now, what I love as a political science uh, junkie, what I love to talk about communism, yes, do I personally feel that there's this stigma associated to communism? No, not necessarily, because communism, to me, you know, I view it in a very nuanced way, but, you know, regardless if you like it or not, most of the population, they don't agree that communism is good. They think it's it's destructive. Now, I get the counterpoints. Again, you're preaching to the choir, because, you know, when you talk about capitalism claiming more lives worldwide than communism, you're right. Capitalism is a system that is inherently predatory. It's a killer. So yes, we have to beat capitalism into submission, but at the same time, it's much easier to win by selling your ideas as policies and not as isms. So this discussion about democratic socialism, you know, if I were Cornell West, automatically rattle off the policies that are attached to these types of of political ideologies, Medicare for all, ending the wars, legalizing marijuana, tuition-free public college and education, a federal jobs guarantee. These are things that are easier for average, non-savvy political consumers to digest. Now, to be fair, I think that this conversation that we're having as a country about socialism is actually having a very positive impact because a lot more millennials, people in my generation, they don't view socialism as this scary political philosophy as previous generations did. But with that being said, I think the reason why socialism, that stigma is slowly but surely being eroded socially is because individuals like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are strictly speaking about that political philosophy in terms of the policy implications attached to it. Now, even though it does bug me that they are technically describing social democracy and they're not true democratic socialists, still, I think that this this talk of policy is really what's driving public support for socialism. But now that we have everyone's ear and the country is paying attention to us, I don't think that we should go out of our way to be provocative and try to make communism mainstream when we barely are getting socialism into the mainstream conversation on cable news. I just don't think that that would be a fruitful endeavor, honestly. And with that being said, I love the DSA. I love what they do. I think they are fantastic at political mobilization. But at the same time, I I, I just want to emphasize that 
if we stick to policy and we don't get too caught up in what each ism means, then I think we will prevail and ultimately win in the end. If you stick to the policy, it's the easiest way to win given this context that we're living in, given the right-wing Overton window we are dealing with in this country. So, in short, this turned out to be a way longer conversation about this than I wanted to have. Um, stick to the stick to the policies, avoid the isms if you can, and and just sell your ideas in a way that is concrete and makes sense. Never get away from policy. Don't let the isms bog you down. Well, in a surprise turn of events, I am happy to report that California's net neutrality law has in fact been resurrected by state lawmakers. Now, again, if it passes, then reportedly it will still be the strongest net neutrality protections in the country. But the way that this story ends, at least up until this point, is very interesting to me because the individual who originally gutted their net neutrality proposal is now basically claiming to be a hero of the movement and is one of the individuals that brought it back to life. So as John Brodkin of Ars Technica reports, a California net neutrality bill that could impose the toughest rules in the country is being resurrected. The bill was approved in its strongest form by the California Senate, but it was then gutted by the State Assembly's Communications Committee, which approved the bill only after eliminating provisions opposed by AT&T and cable lobbyists. Bill author Scott Weiner has been negotiating with Communications Committee Chairman Miguel Santiago and other lawmakers since then, and he announced the results today. Weiner said the agreement with Santiago and other lawmakers resulted in legislation implementing the strongest net neutrality protections in the nation. According to Weiner, the compromised version has all the same protections as the version of the bill that passed the Senate. But the compromise version is structured differently in order to satisfy Santiago's concern about making sure the rules will stand up in court, Wiener told ours. He wanted a bill that reflected the protections of the FCC's 2015 order and is defensible in court, Wiener said. Those are two things I wanted as well. It was just a matter of having a product that we both agreed got us there. Santiago, Wiener, and other lawmakers appeared at a joint press conference today. Quote, we are talking about interest Introducing the strongest net neutrality bill in the nation, Santiago said. Santiago said he urged both Democratic-leaning and Republican-leaning states to pass similar legislation. There are a lot of blue states in the country. We expect them to stand up and join us in this fight and pass measures that are equally strong, he said. For red states, I recommend that you follow suit or we are going to flip some of those states, he said. A separate bill that was also included in the negotiations will be amended to focus on requiring ISPs that enter into state contracts adhere to net neutrality principles, the fact sheet said. This provision ensures that public entities only expend taxpayer funds on contracts with ISPs that comply with California's comprehensive net neutrality protections. Now, the bill itself has yet to be released to the public, so we kind of just have to take Wiener's word that it's still strong and that it is. it would be really a game changer in terms of setting the bar high for protecting net neutrality. Now, look, I don't believe that Miguel Santiago, the person who killed this bill and now brought it back, is doing this for altruistic reasons. When he states that he wanted to make sure that, you know, Wiener's bill was more legally defensible, I just don't believe him. 
he is an individual that took money, thousands of dollars from AT&T, and they've been lobbying hard to kill this legislation. And what did he do? He did exactly what they wanted. They donated to him and they expected a return on that investment. And that's what he gave them. He gave them exactly what they paid him to do. But now all of a sudden, he's claiming that he supports this bill because it meets his legal criteria. But really, the reason why he did this 180 degree turnaround is because of the overwhelming response from net neutrality activists. They filled up his voicemail systems at all of his offices. They flooded his email inbox. If it weren't for that pressure, do you think he would have honestly decided to come on board as an ally? Of course not. People in California refused to let him do this, and it's because of their activism specifically that they were able to change his mind. I mean, think about this. In 2014, when Obama's FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, initially proposed fast lanes, which would have been the death of net neutrality, he ended up leaving office as an ally to us because we put an overwhelming amount of pressure on him. And the same thing is happening with Miguel Santiago. So after just gutting net neutrality a couple of weeks ago, this is what he says now. Quote, no time in history have we ever demanded this sort of action faced with what we now see at the national level. No time in history do we need an open and free internet like we need it now. So understand that what he's saying is 100% disingenuous. He unilaterally spearheaded this effort to kill their net neutrality bill at the behest of his donor, AT&T, and now all of a sudden, he's being trotted out as this hero and savior to net neutrality. Well, I'm sorry, Miguel, but you don't get to take credit and claim to be a hero for putting out a fire that you started in the first place. That's not the way that this works. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad that he listened to the people, but on an issue like net neutrality, where 83% of the population wants to protect net neutrality, activists shouldn't have even had to put this much pressure on him to begin with. I mean, for a self-proclaimed progressive, we shouldn't have to babysit you and make sure that you don't fuck us over at the behest of your donors. I mean, when corporate Democrats like Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Donnelly, and even Doug Jones vote correctly on this issue, but you, a self-proclaimed progressive, fuck us over and make us dedicate weeks trying to get you to change course, you're not a progressive. You're not being genuine here. You're not supporting this for altruistic reasons. You are being career-minded. You're looking out for your own career because you know that if you don't actually come on board with net neutrality, you're going to lose your job because you're being challenged by an individual named Kevin Jang, who does in fact support net neutrality and opposed what you did to the original bill. Now, again, I'm going to say this to be clear. I'm very happy that he listened to the people. It's always laudable when politicians listen to their constituents. But again, the cynic in me still wants him to be voted out of office because you've got to send a message to lawmakers in other states that ultimately are discussing this issue. If, if they see that this one lawmaker lost his job because he betrayed net neutrality activists, that sends a powerful message to other state lawmakers who are also considering net neutrality protections. I mean, Scott Wiener is exporting his bill to New York. He's helping them replicate their strong net neutrality protections. Don't you think lawmakers there will be less inclined to gut their version of net neutrality in the same way that Miguel Santiago did in California if they know that they might lose their jobs because of it? So, I mean, look, I think that 
At the end of the day, what matters is the policy outcome. It looks like they're going to get net neutrality. They have until, I believe, August 31st for it to be voted on and uh, signed into law by Governor Jerry Brown. We'll see what happens. It looks like it's on track to pass, but at the same time, this is the second attempt in California to water down or outright kill this bill because, again, AT&T and internet service provider lobbyists are doing everything in their power to defeat this because they know that this could set a new standard. It could potentially be replicated at other states, and they don't want this to ever get passed. So I wouldn't be surprised if it got watered down again. But this look, this is what I do. If you're in the 53rd district of California, don't vote for Miguel Santiago again. That's certainly what I would do. Um, I would not vote for him if I were in that district because... If he was willing to take money from a large multinational corporation and then brazenly do their bidding in an openly corrupt manner, basically a quid pro quo, he's going to do it again on other issues. So we need to teach these politicians a lesson. And the only way they learn is if they lose their jobs. The only way other politicians learn is if their colleagues lose their jobs when they fuck over the people. So this is good news overall. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but understand that we this needs to stop happening. Democrats, we I mean, we should be able to depend on you for issues like net neutrality. If national Democrats got this right, there should be no excuse for state Democrats. So out of all the stories I've come across over the last couple of years to illustrate what exactly late-stage capitalism looks like, none of them have ever come as close as a new television show that has just been announced by True TV called Paid Off. Now, what this show is, is it's a game show like The Price is Right or The Wheel of Fortune. And instead of rewarding winners with money, they pay off their student loan debt. And the whole premise of the show is centered around that concept of ameliorating this student loan crisis one winner at a time. Not even making this up. So as Tara Ariano of Slate explains, premiering Tuesday on True TV, paid off with Michael Torpe, is pretty traditional for the genre. There are three rounds of play in which contestants buzz in to answer trivia questions and earn points. What sets it apart from other entries in the genre is what happens in the final round. If the top contestant answers eight trivia questions correctly, she wins a cash prize equal to the balance she owes on her student loans because the contestant pull for paid off is the more than 40 million Americans who hold student loan debt. The last recession was fueled in part by a mortgage crisis. Economists warn that the U.S. may suffer a student loan crisis next. A study earlier this year found that two in five borrowers were likely to default. Filing for bankruptcy may not allow a borrower to discharge her student loan since undue hardship is the standard she must meet despite the fact that the term has never been legally defined and can be liberally interpreted by a presiding judge. According to 83% of millennial borrowers, student loan debt is a bigger impediment to their potential home ownership than budget-busting servings of avocado toast. Oppressive student loan debt is not the only factor contributing to millennials' declining economic mobility, but even the Conservative Heritage Foundation names it as a significant cause. So, I feel really torn um, on the show itself, right? Because 
it, it's it's exploiting a crisis that really plagues millions of Americans. And there's something inherently gross about that. But at the same time, the article contends that the show itself does try to tackle the issue in a serious way. But at the end of the day, it is still making light of it. So look, I, I'm torn on this. Um, will a game show solve the student loan crisis? Of course not. But think about this. This is what people have to resort to when you have a predatory, unfettered, capitalistic system where everything has been commodified. Everything. Healthcare, education. It's all about profit and not about the delivery of goods, the delivery of healthcare, the delivery of education. If you want to pay off your healthcare bills, what do you do? Well, you turn to GoFundMe. Now, if you want your... um. Student loan debt paid off, what do you do? You go on paid off on True TV. I mean, I just... The fact that it's come to this, it really speaks to how far we've fallen morally as a society. I mean, you often hear conservatives, namely evangelicals, talk about the moral decline of America because we've taken God out of the schools, we've taken God out of public places. This signifies the moral decline of America. If students feel as though they might be able to pay off their student loan debt by going on a fucking game show, that's moral decline. It shows you what's wrong with our for-profit healthcare and education system. There are things that should be off the table in modern egalitarian societies. You shouldn't die or go bankrupt if you have a healthcare emergency. You shouldn't be burdened with debt for the rest of your life if you decide to get an education to make yourself more competitive when it comes to employment. Yeah, this is um this is one of those stories where I just kind of feel kind of embarrassed, you know, to be an American. There was an article uh, published by Newsweek that Ben Shapiro wrote asking why it's the case that liberals are less proud to be Americans than conservatives. And really, Ben, it's because we put facts over feelings. It's the fact that the American dream is dead. We, we know this. It's a fact. The Canadian dream is alive. The American dream is dead. We're not taking care of our people. We're spending all this money. We're giving up huge portions of our paycheck. We're paying our taxes. And what are we getting in return? We're getting wars. We're getting tax cuts for the wealthy. Well, I say enough is enough. I don't want to pay for that shit anymore. I want a federal jobs guarantee. I want housing security. I want universal free college and Medicare for all. These are things that are, they're, they're non-negotiable if you truly care about your population. But in America, we don't care about our population. This is what we care about. Profits. We prioritize profits over people. And there's a large number of people in this country that characterize themselves as pro-life, but I don't see those individuals speaking out against the lives that are lost every year from people who can't afford health care. I don't see them speaking out against the lives that are lost due to the wars that we are waging with, what, eight countries now? 
So, um, yeah, this, honestly, this is just really a depressing story. I, I don't know what else to say about this. I just, I couldn't not talk about this because it really, it speaks to how far we've fallen as a society that a game show is perhaps a more feasible option for some people of paying off their student debt than actually finding a job that will allow them to pay off their student debt and actually, you know, not getting that debt in the first place since education is so expensive. I mean, it's it's grotesque. So there's an incoming change to YouTube that I think we should all be aware of. Um, the good news is that they are actually being relatively transparent and telling us ahead of time that this change will be happening, but um, it's still pretty worrisome. So this is a new report from the Financial Times that talks about their new push to combat fake news. But for a brief summary, we'll go to the Daily Beast who states, YouTube will invest $25 million to improve its news features and combat fake news ahead of the 2018 midterm elections, the Financial Times reports. The company said it would invest in more authoritative news videos to counter the conspiracy theory clips that plagued the site. It would also insert text articles in feeds when breaking news occurs and will roll out an information panel promoting videos from legitimate news groups. Neil Moan, chief product officer at YouTube, told reporters that taking videos down would not be part of this effort. News events are going to be questioned, rightly or wrongly. People will have a conspiratorial opinion. We want users to make decisions for themselves, he said. While Facebook and Twitter have been mostly taking the heat in the fight against disinformation, followers of QAnon, conspiracy theory, and far-right personalities have used the video hosting website as a platform. This is very worrisome. Is fake news a problem on YouTube? Absolutely. I don't think any of us will deny that fact. But the problem is that if you try to combat fake news specifically, if you try to target conspiracy theorists, it's really difficult to not also bog down independent media creators like myself who don't peddle bullshit. We just give our commentary on pressing political issues. And furthermore, they state here, they assure us, you know, that they're not going to be deleting conspiracy theory videos, but they could effectively delete them by using their algorithm to bury them. And I'm not in favor of individuals like Alex Jones. I'm not saying that you delete his channel because I wouldn't agree with that. But you just, again, you have to be a really responsible consumer of media. If you think this individual is being honest and telling you the truth, then unfortunately that was a failing on your own part if you let someone this crazy dupe you over. And even if it is the case that conspiracy theorists are able to thrive on YouTube, well, YouTube also created this platform that allowed for independent media to thrive, media that's free from corporate influence. Like when I tell you something, it's not coming through a corporate filter like when you'd hear it from CNN. They can't talk about things that might affect their advertisings. For example, why hasn't MSNBC, a liberal network, not talked about net neutrality? Well, it's because, who's their parent company? Comcast. So everything that these cable news outlets or these, quote, authoritative news sources say, it's filtered through large multinational corporations. So we need independent media. And the problem with any tweaks to the algorithm or any changes or any attempts to fight fake news is that these algorithms, even if they are improving, they're still not smart enough to decipher differences between someone just talking about terrorism on YouTube and someone who's promoting it. And in most instances, 
people are going to be against terrorism. But if we talk about ISIS, for example, the algorithm, it, it just, it demonetizes it because it thinks that, you know, any talk of terrorism must be to um, promote it, which is, it's so unfair. There's there's so much nuance here, right? So I, I don't know how this will affect us thus far i'm perfectly fine with them showing articles next to the videos like you know they, they're talking about including wikipedia sources about you know let's say if there's a video about the apollo moon landing they'll have a wikipedia article next to it so you can't end up um, getting duped by a video that tells you that the moon landing was fake so I, i'm okay with that but what I'm not okay with, or really what I'm worried about is the way this will affect independent media, because if you are someone who wants to launch a political channel in news and politics, then how will this affect you? Is this raising the barrier to entry for YouTube? Because I don't want it to just be like 10 progressive voices on YouTube. It shouldn't be just myself, Kyle Kalinske, David Pakman, David Dole, Jen Uger, and others being the sole authoritative voice on progressivism. People should be able to join the conversation and start YouTube channels if they feel as though there's something missing in all of our uh, commentaries and whatnot. But I'm worried that this is going to further dissuade people from getting involved when I think a lot of people have really insightful things to say about politics. So we're going to just have to really wait and see how this turns out. I'm not optimistic. Anytime there's a change, I'm always... I'm always worried um, and expecting the worst, really. I think all of us have come to expect the worst because it just time and again, anything that happens, indie media gets hit the hardest. News and politics gets hit the hardest. So look, at the end of the day, I'll hope for the best, but expect the worst. That's kind of what we have to do when it comes to YouTube. And let's just hope that if they're going to target fake news, they do a good job and they don't end up hurting independent media and burying independent media in the process but i think that they're probably going to end up doing that because they've they've done it time and again so i wouldn't be surprised if that happened um and look the problem again i'll say this about fake news if you want to fight fake news you you can't you can't censor those voices like alex jones you have to arm yourself with with information you need to teach people how to be responsible consumers of media because there's a lot of dishonest actors out there that profit off of clickbait that profit off of bullshit theories conspiracy theories and that's wrong that's problematic that's harmful to american political discourse but you can't you can't bring down everyone else in the process now i'm not saying that that's not what will result due to this policy change uh i hope that's not the case but it's a possibility that this will hurt indie media so We'll just, we'll wait and see, but um, I'm definitely worried. I'm here with Dorothy Gasquet, a congressional candidate running in Washington State's 3rd District. She's actually a neighbor of mine because I'm in Portland, Oregon. I actually went to school uh, in your district, uh, community college. So uh, it's really nice to have a neighbor on who is a progressive. Welcome, Dorothy. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, yeah, I, I'm actually happy to hear you went to college here. Yeah, <laughs> I Clark. Uh, I went to Longview Community College. Uh, it was <laughs> yeah, I was there for a couple of years. I was a little bit behind, but you know, it, it was a lovely area. Um, so yeah, I I'm I had the pleasure, just so everyone knows, of meeting Dorothy and her volunteers at the live Jimmy Dore show. Um, I don't think I've ever met people with that level of energy, and their enthusiasm was contagious. Like I was 
automatically excited for you. Um, and I and I hadn't heard anything about your campaign beforehand. So what are you doing to generate this much excitement? Because this is purely grassroots. You're not taking a dime in corporate cash. So what do you think is generating all of this excitement? I want your secret. <laughs> oh, I think it's just an eagerness for change. I mean, I, I don't think I, I didn't spark this. Bernie did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can I can totally agree with that. Now, what's really unique about your campaign is that you actually have this really bold anti-war stance, but this is fueled by the fact that you're a veteran. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that your position on this is important because you have credibility. You've seen mm -hmm. war firsthand. So tell me what you saw and why it kind of led you to this anti-war progressive stance. Well, it actually starts before I deployed. So I was stationed at the National Training Center, which is in the Mojave Desert of California. And it was our job to create these realistic battle scenarios for the troops that are about to deploy. And so we would take on the role of Iraqi civilians and insurgents and terrorists and try to create these realistic situations we would do like mock elections and we had these like mock villages out in the mojave desert and we would stay there for our entire time living in buildings out there and we got to see things from the perspective of somebody living in iraq who hadn't done anything wrong who was just trying to survive and seeing how much miscommunication can harm things or just simple mistakes can lead to big problems and understanding that everything we were doing was just to mitigate violence we weren't solving any problems there wasn't any mission to really succeed at and then and then deploying with my unit uh, we were considered the best trained unit in the military so we deployed knowing, having seen things from the other side, we did a really good job. Uh, we had a third the size of the force from the unit that we took over, but we had and, you know, we, we did the best that we could. And even then there were civilian casualties and it's just heartbreaking destruction of the country that is our fault kids were couldn't go to school without having to deal with improvised explosive devices but they would still go every day to school and just that that violence wasn't there before we and i think that just gave me a real perspective on how bad things were I watched a short documentary with you um, that featured you and your campaign, and something you said really was poignant. You, you said that there were people in Iraq that were angry at the fact that, you know, the U.S. was, they had invaded that country, you know, and you guys were seen as outsiders, obviously, because you were, and you said, look, I... I can see where they're coming from, because if someone invaded America, I would view them the same exact way. So... Why, why is it, and this is really difficult because I'm basically going to ask you to psychoanalyze Americans, but why do you think that there's this huge lack of empathy when it comes to foreign policy issues, um, specifically with regard to people in government? Like, why don't they care that we're causing death and destruction around the world? 
I think that there's just a lot, a lack of real understanding. This is probably the first war in American history in which, like, even the media sort of blocked from filming what's going on. Yeah. What we call these green zones that are really well secured, and that's where the media was located. And so they weren't really out with us in some of the more dangerous areas. And so they didn't even really get a perspective on this. It's, it's a very sanitized perspective of war. And I think there's just, there's so much money that comes from the defense industry and that goes into their pockets. So they're kind of, they're paid to turn a blind eye to what's going on. Uh, and then you've got the fossil fuel industry too, which has got, and interest in the Middle East. I mean, a lot of what we did was for oil. Right. And and you're kind of touching on, I think, one of the biggest planks of your platform, which is corporate money and politics. We have this system where large multinational corporations can legally bribe politicians. And there's it's viewed under you know um, Supreme Court cases like McCutcheon and Citizens United as perfectly illegal, and there's not even the um, appearance of corruption, as the McCutcheon um, I think ruling opinion stated. So, mm-hmm. can you talk about what we can do politically um, and what types of policies we could implement to mitigate that? level of corruption do you think that we can do it with legislation alone or do you think we actually need to amend the constitution and ban money as a form of uh, free speech well i think the first step is getting involved um, in organizations like represent us and wolf pack and really working at that grassroots level to to change at the local state and the national level um, through legislation and it's gonna to have to come through legislation first. And there are things we can do. So Represent Us has the American Anti-Corruption Act, which is what I run at the top of my platform. And this can be done with a simple majority in the House and the Senate. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment, which makes it a lot easier. But I right. do think eventually that constitutional amendment office who are not beholden to big money interest can you repeat policies. what you said? You were kind of um, splitting up there. You, right. you were talking about the constitutional amendment. Can you say that mm-hmm. one more time? Right. Let me try and remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think like that we ne- eventually we do need to amend the constitution, but it's going to take two thirds of the Senate and it's going to take um, the states to ratify it. And so that's a long-term process, but we yeah. can do it by legislation first by passing the American Anti-Corruption Act and doing things like banning lobbyists from being able to donate to candidates. Yeah. There's, there's an example I give. So as a federal candidate, I can't take any money from a federal contractor. But if a company is a federal contractor, they can hire a lobbyist and that lobbyist can donate. So we have to close that loophole that allows that influence to happen through campaign donations from lobbyists. And they so they can go to industries, leaders, and get money from them and then put that into politicians' accounts too. And they're really able then to influ- influence legislation. And it's not that difficult. If you think about how Congress works, a bill goes into committee. 
And that's where it either dies or goes to the floor. Yep. And committees are only a few people. Some of them are about 15, 13 to 15 members. And so paying off half that committee isn't that difficult. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're making a great point. And, I, and I'm curious how you would respond to the centrist neoliberal, I guess you could say, counter argument um, that, that says, look, you, you can't show up to a gunfight with a knife. So why don't you just take corporate money now? And when you get in office, you just betray all of your donors. So why do you think it's so important to prove to people that you're not taking corporate money and putting yourself essentially at a disadvantage by rejecting that corporate money? Why is remaining principled important to you? I think because the only way that people are going to trust you and actually show up to help is if you don't take that corporate money. I, I have no faith in anyone who says they can take it and then go in and regulate because I've been hearing that for my whole adult life since I've yeah. been it's almost, like, it's almost like it, we, we've been betrayed by people who take corporate money before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, so, and I, think, I think I am bringing, you know, I feel like with the, the people power, I'm bringing a machine gun mm -hmm. to this fight. I like that. More powerful than the power of people uniting and fighting together. Right. And, and honestly, it's been shown now with the victories of progressives ac across the country, Ben Jealous, Emily Sirota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that you can still be competitive and reject corporate cash. And now that you guys are starting to win across the country, I think that neoliberals are probably getting worried because they don't have this excuse anymore. They can't say, well, look, I I'm just taking corporate money, but my goal is to end Citizens United. They can't really say that anymore because you guys are proving that it can be done. Um, and which is why I love all of these grassroots candidates. I love organizations like Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats because, you know, it it really does demonstrate the power that is in the grassroots. And it's amazing. I think your your volunteers are doing such a fantastic job on the on the issue of money in politics. Can you point to a few specific policies that the American people are in favor of that? isn't being passed or codified into law specifically because special interests are funding politicians to oppose it? Oh, like specific legislation? Yeah, um, anything in particular. Yeah. So Medicare for all is a big one. Right. So 60% of the population now wants a Medicare for all style program. And that's not going to happen until we get rid of the, the influence of the health insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. I think 50 million last year. And um, oh, the pharmaceutical industry spent over like two hundred and fifty. Say say that one more time. You're you're breaking up. Um, you were talking about the pharma pharmaceutical industry yeah. spending. So the the pharmaceutical industry spent about two hundred and fifty million dollars last year. That's insane. And that so that's they're buying that that's influence their buying and lobbying has about a 4,000% return on investment. I did not know that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's horrifying. So here's what I want to ask you. Um, because I, I think that you're taking really principled stances on issues. You want to get money out of politics. Um, would you support anti-corruption laws that are basically lifetime bans on politicians becoming lobbyists. Do you think that goes too extreme? What else can we do besides publicly financing elections that mitigates corruption at a broader level? Because I think it's just rampant. 
Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to do a lifetime ban. I do think like a five-year ban is enough to have kind of changed the face of politics so their influence is reduced. And as long as you're getting rid of that ability for them to finance campaigns, then they're just there to educate. And that's an important part of lobbying. Lobbying is protected by the First Amendment. It is a person's or group's ability to educate politicians about issues they may not know about. And so we do need that, but we don't need them to be able to finance campaigns. Right, right. That's that's a huge point. And one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that even if um, these lobbyists or multinational corporations aren't buying off politicians, they are buying complacency in some instances. So, for example, some Democrats might receive funding from the NRA to not oppose uh, specific measures that they want uh, implemented. So it, it goes both ways, really. And Corruption is just rampant, which is why I think that these types of grassroots campaigns like yours and Ocasio-Cortez's and others who are running are particularly important. So let me ask you this. This is something that I always like to um, ask, con ask congressional candidates. There's so much going on right now. And if we really wanted to fix our country, there'd be like a hundred different policies that we'd have to um, we'd have to legislate on. So what would be a focus for you what maybe top three issues would you prioritize if you were elected well top one is getting money out of politics and the first thing i would do is try and pass a law to make it illegal for our representatives to fundraise during working hours mm -hmm. currently they spend five out of the eight hours a day that we pay them calling people for donations for their next election and for their party and that's something that if we end talk about some of the other measures to get money out of politics. And I think after that, healthcare is a really big deal, but economic security is probably the biggest issue. And healthcare falls under that. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, the one thing we hear the most in this district, this point, you know, we're out there, we're knocking on doors, and the people we're talking to are struggling because their rent's going up, but their paychecks aren't. And so we've seen people who've gotten a $300 a month increase in their rent. And so that's just, it's un, it's unsustainable. Like people can't yeah. keep living like that. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying because they're losing their security. And, you know, if you, if you get a rent increase of $300, then what's to say you're still going to be able to live there next year? And it's going to fuel, you know, this homeless crisis. There's, there's a lot going on. There's so much. So... Um, let, let me let me get down to specific bills here because I think this is important. So if you were elected, would you co-sponsor HR 676, the Medicare for All bill? Uh, yeah, it's, I'd, I'd like to see it uh, beefed up and turned more into look like Senator Sanders bill, but I would definitely support HR 676. For sure. And, and I'd actually agree with you there. Um, and I think that they'd probably have to reconcile both bills because from what I understand, Sanders bill is kind of more of a companion to Conyers bill. But yeah, I do agree. I think that we do have to kind of expand HR 676, but I'm glad to hear that. Another thing that I asked you about before in a previous interview I did with you for your Facebook page was I, I specifically asked about HR 3057. Now, for those of you who don't know what this is, this is a bill that would end gerrymandering. It would make ranked choice voting um, the standard nationwide. And also it, it would move us from single member districts to multi-member districts, meaning that our our electoral system would be more proportional and not winner take all. So would you co-sponsor something like that? 
Yes, I'm actually really interested to see this uh, multi-winner ranked choice voting on a smaller scale. I'm hoping they'll get it implemented somewhere in the United States. We're actually in Clark County, and we're hoping to be able to get it um, instituted for our Vancouver City Council races. Yeah, that would be great. And I know that there's a huge push right now in Massachusetts that is trying to get ranked choice voting um, on the ballot for the state in uh, in 2020. So it does start locally. But yeah, th this this whole top down approach and making ranked choice voting the standard would be, I think, just it would have such a huge impact on our country. And of course, there's still more work to be done, of course, getting money out of politics, but electoral reform is still such an important part of that conversation. So I'm glad that you would kind of bring that discussion to Congress with you. Um, so can you tell us what we can do if we wanna get involved? For those of us that don't live in the Pacific Northwest, what, what can people in New York do if they wanna support your campaign and make you the next Ocasio-Cortez? Well, obviously the most important thing is those small dollar donations. Um, so our website is dorothyforcongress.com. You can just click on the button on there. Uh, we have a couple of options, um, ActBlue, CrowdPack, send us a check. Uh, and if you become a monthly donor, you get a brick on our wall. So we put our nice. monthly donors' names up on the wall. And um, But we also need phone bankers, so organizing phone banks through the Justice Dialer, and that's justicedialer.com. Uh, and you can just scroll down and you'll find the our candidate, the, the upcoming primary should be moved to the top of the list for the Justice Dialer by now. And then the, the other thing is we have a volunteer uh, link on our website. So if you just, if there's something else you wanna do, graphic design, research, if you wanna travel here and spend a weekend canvassing, um, those are always options. Just go ahead and fill out that volunteer form and our coordinator will get in touch with you. All right. Well, that sounds good. And one last thing I want to ask you is in the event you were elected and Nancy Pelosi decides to run to be the House minority or majority speaker, what do you do in that instance? Do you vote yes or do you support someone else like Barbara Lee? I would not support Nancy Pelosi. I'm actually very excited by the idea that we can get a progressive champion like Barbara Lee. So right. We put my vote. <laughs> <laughs> I am very relieved to hear that. <laughs> so is there anything else that you want to say before we leave that you think is important? Um, anything with regard to the election itself? Does anybody have to be registered as a Democrat to vote for you? Can independents vote for you? Anything just you want to um, put out there beforehand? So it's a, it's an open primary. It's top two jungle, similar to what California runs on. I mean, we've been doing it longer. <laughs> That's it. But it's uh, you can vote for anybody can vote for us. And we don't register by party here at all. That's, that's great. And it's yeah. by mail. And this year it will be postage paid. So you can just stick it back in the mail and it will be sent in for you. All right. Well, you've heard it here first. Dorothy Gasquet running for Congress in Washington's third congressional district. Um, hopefully you will join Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Congress. I think the momentum really is behind progressives right now. So I'm watching all of these races. Um, it's very exciting. Thank you so much for coming on, Dorothy. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the program, I truly appreciate all of your views. Um, and loyalty, you guys are just so amazing. The progressive movement is absolutely strong and we are united on the issue. So I, I'm just so thankful for all of you. So if you'd like to support the show, if you like what you see, visit humanistreport.com. You can support us by uh, checking out patreon.com forward slash 
Humanist Report. Um, and that's all that I've got to say. Uh, I will see you all next week. Take care.